apparently has a new song. I am a little hot, though. You might want to. There we go. Okay. Good morning again, everyone. I feel like on the months that I preach, I basically should just, like, sit down up here. Um, but uh, we're, uh, we're transitioning things, getting things moving. So I wanted to continue to share with you the qualifications for a leader. Remember, at the beginning of last week, I asked you two questions at the beginning, and then we reiterated uh, throughout, and at the end, I asked you a couple of different questions. So I want you to go into today's sermon with the same type of questions in your mind. So since you might not have written those down, I'm going to do you a solid. I'm going to ask you those questions again. I, uh, I have two here. The first one is, what are the qualifications for a leader? I know that seems like, well, James, isn't that what the, the arc this month is? Aren't we talking about that? Well, yes, we are. Uh, so I want you to be asking yourself that question. And then what I also want you to answer is, uh, what do you look for to determine if you should follow a leader? So as we talk about the qualifications for a leader, uh, it's important that we have ourselves an understanding of what it is exactly that we are looking for in this leader that we are consigning ourselves to follow. Uh, who is it that we're looking to follow? What qualities do they have? What are their qualifications? That type of thing. We also talked about the fact that these types of questions have been asked and they have been studied for years. Uh, they've been studied for decades. And again, if I call your attention to last July, uh, which is available from our website, you can uh, relive all of the glory that was July last year in my sermon and refresh your memory that there is nobody in the secular world that has a definitive answer for what leadership is, what effective leadership is, or even what the best qualifications for leadership are. So obviously, as we like to do, instead of looking to the outside world, we look into God's word and we see what qualifications he talks about for leaders. I'm not going to sit here and throw up a little checklist for you and say, okay, we're looking for this, we're looking for this. Um, there's more to it than that. As we discussed last week, God calls a variety of people, a variety of people that, let's face it, were far from perfect. I mean, we talked about Moses, for example. Moses himself, um, in addition to having a hot temper, right, he got so angry at the Egyptian slave driver that he decked him, one punch, one kill. And then, because, uh, and then when he comes back the next day and he's questioned to it by Hebrew slaves, he runs for the wilderness because he's afraid for his life. God, even in that, still comes to him in the form of the burning bush that's not consumed, and he says, this is what you're going to do. And Moses, instead of taking hold and embracing that calling that God has given him, that burning bush that we often refer to now as a symbol that we're being called, right? Oh, what's my burning bush? That type of thing. Moses says, I can't do it. I stutter. I aren't speak well. So finally, 
after many backs and forth, Moses uh, finally uh, is able to uh, have God decide, you know what, fine, we'll send Aaron as well. Because even in Moses' denial of the fact that God could work through him in that way, God still provided a way and did not let that be a stumbling block for him to put into play the people that needed to be put into place. Um, and if you need a refresher on where that's found, other than the James Bridge version that you just heard, uh, you can look in Exodus uh, 4. Uh, 10 through 13 tells us about Moses and uh, his feeling that his lack of speaking skills would disqualify him. Now, we're going to take a little bit further look at Moses and follow that through a little bit, and we're going to take a look at a couple of other people today and see how it is that God operates to make sure that he uh, can get the, the people that he wants into uh, the position that he wants uh, so that he can make sure that things are carried on and things are handled uh, correctly. So last week, of course, we looked at just callings. Uh, this week, we're going to look more about succession. So this is the passing of leadership from one person to the other. And there are many examples that are given to us in God's word, but we're going to focus on just a couple of them. And we are going to start out with Moses, because I think in Moses we see um, the, kind of, the kind of transition that uh, seriously even affects us into the modern day. Um, because of a couple of different variables. So, would like to take you back, take you way back, to before Israel was founded a nation in the Promised Land, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, just before the tribes are going to cross over the Jordan River, and seize hold of what God had promised all the way back to Abraham. Now you see, Moses would not be crossing over into the land. Remember I mentioned his hot temper. Well, Moses' temper had gotten the best of him when the people were once again complaining that they wanted water and that God had led them into the wilderness to die. And Moses, instead of doing what God had told him to do, speaking over a rock, allowing the water to flow, he started hitting the rock with his staff. I just want to, he just, I guess, beat the rock with his stick. Because he was so angry that he was still dealing with this same type of disbelief that God would provide for him. Now, because of this rash action, Moses himself was not allowed to take hold of God's promise. So on the eve of his death, Moses asked God to provide a successor to lead the people after his demise. And you can see this in Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. So in Numbers chapter 27, 16, and 17, God directs him to Joshua. Now, Joshua is selected by God to be the one who will complete the process and lead the people of Israel into the promised land. 
Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard about Joshua. It's not like it you know, was a name drawn out of a hat or something. It's not like a raffle to be Moses' successor, right? Um, Joshua is first mentioned in Exodus 17, where he is selected by Moses to lead the Israelite army into battle against the Amalekites. Moses recognized that Joshua had leadership qualities, and God was preparing Joshua as a warrior. See, when the Israelites were going in to take over the land and Joshua was taking charge as their leader, they still had inhabitants in the land that they would have to do battle with in order to claim what God had given them. So from an early, early age, we see that Joshua was selected for that. Joshua is again mentioned in Exodus 24, 13. He is the one that accompanies Moses up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Joshua was next to Moses when he took those tablets that God had written his commandments on. And when Moses looked down and saw the Israelites worshiping a golden calf that Aaron, his brother, had made from their jewelry that they had given to him. Joshua is the one that was standing next to him when he took those tablets and he threw them to the ground in anger. Think about that powerful type of experience to live through. It is Joshua who guards the tent of meeting where Moses meets face to face with God in Exodus 33. So in addition to his military development, Joshua was exposed to God's direct dealings with Moses. Joshua was present when the Lord sent his spirit upon the 70 leaders in Numbers 11. When two men were prophesying in camp contrary to Moses' direction, it is Joshua who asked Moses to rebuke them. He himself refused to rebuke his elders. It is Joshua who was chosen to be one of the 12 spies. And he, along with Caleb, are the only ones that came back and reported how blessed they would be to be able to take hold of the land when all the other spies said we will never be able to live here. There are giants here. We will be crushed into dust. It is Joshua, along with Caleb, that asked them to reconsider and to take hold of what God had given to them. And this is in Numbers 14 as well. After Joshua had developed and proven his character, he'd been tested in various leadership positions and experienced direct revelations from God, the Lord was ready. Notice I didn't say that Joshua was ready. The Lord was ready for Joshua to take on a leadership role. It's important to note that God is the one that chose Joshua. It was not Moses. It was not Joshua himself who stepped up and said, I am here, I can do it.
It is God who placed his spirit on Joshua. It is God's provision for leadership. Moses had Joshua stand before the priests, and he commissioned him before all of the people. He laid his hands on him in front of the people and transferred his mantle of authority to him. After this happened, there was no one who could doubt that Joshua was now the leader of the 12 tribes. In Joshua 1, 7 and 8, God assigns Joshua an additional role. Joshua was to closely follow the book of law that Moses wrote. Now, why is this significant? This is the first time in Scripture that we see someone directed to follow the written word as opposed to receiving direct revelation from God. Joshua was directed to follow the book of law that Moses had written, even though all before Joshua had been governed by words directly from God's mouth. This book had been prepared for Joshua, and Joshua was to fulfill the words of the book. Joshua himself was not perfect. We know for fact that he was under Moses for at least 40 years. Many more than that. But we know it was at least 40 because after the spies came back with their report, how long was it that the Israelites were forced to wander the desert because of their disbelief? 40 years. So that's how we know that. But since Joshua was also the one that was up on the mountain, and Joshua was also the one that was leading the armies against the Amalekites, we know that he spent many years at the side of Moses. And we know that even though he spent those years, he himself did not feel ready for leadership, but it was God who decided that Joshua was the one who would succeed. And this is not the only example that we have of God orchestrating the passing of the mantle of leadership from one to another. The next person that comes into mind is David. I want you to think about David. How is it that David became the king of Israel? Was he the previous king's son? No. He wasn't. Saul was the first person that was chosen by the people to be king. Because he looked strong, and he looked right, and he looked qualified for the position. But Saul turned his back on God. And because Saul turned away from God, Saul lost the throne. He lost the throne, and his line of successors lost the throne. Even though his son Jonathan would have been king, and in fact David and Jonathan were fast friends. The best of friends. It is David who was anointed by Samuel to take over the throne. And we talked about the personhood of David. We talked about the, the type of person that he was. We're used to hearing that he's a man after God's own heart. But we also need to remember that he's also a murderer. 
that he also engaged in extramarital affairs. As we discussed last week, David, who had an affair with a married woman and then proceeded to orchestrate a plan to have her husband sleep with her so that the pregnancy that had occurred would look like his. But the husband didn't play ball and he ended up at the head leading the armies of the Israelites into battle, which was a death sentence for him, orchestrated by David himself. Now, the reason that we touch on this again is because it is that very son that was born to Bathsheba. It is Solomon who is the one who is to succeed. I'm sorry, it was the second son. It wasn't that one. That one died very fast. But it is Solomon, their second child, who would end up taking the throne. This is interesting because it was not... David's first son to survive. In fact, we see in 1 Kings 1, we come across David who's deteriorating from old age. He's old and he's cold. We recognize his deterioration and so did his son, I just, somebody's name, Adinijah. Adinijah saw that his dad was old he saw that his dad was frail, and he decided to himself, I'm going to be the new king. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, as the oldest living son, he decides that he is going to be the king, and he has the backing of the leader of the army. He has the backing of one of the priests supporting him. So he decided to go out and celebrate and sacrifice an ox and a sheep and with all the king's sons and all the men of Judah, he threw a big party. Except he didn't invite a couple of people. Nathan, the prophet. Benaiah, one of the mighty men. And Solomon, his brother, were not invited to this party. Because Adinajah's ambition was to take over the throne after his father's death. David had always waited for God to lift him up, and his son did not follow in his footsteps. So Nathan, the prophet, and Bathsheba both appealed to David about the kingship, and you can see that in Kings 1, 11 through 13. David had already previously designated Solomon to be the king after him. They reminded him of this. So David takes steps to cast his influence behind Solomon. He gets Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah to support him, and then David has Solomon ride out on his mule and sit on his throne. Zadok the priest appoints Solomon king, and the people rejoiced, transferring the mantle from David to Solomon, a succession that takes place. 
David then calls upon Solomon to walk in God's way, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimony. And according to what is written in the law of Moses, again, we see for the second time today, the imploring, the commandment to continue to follow the law of Moses. The written word that had been passed down from God through Moses. Now, as a result of this, those that were following Adinijah were terrified and disturbed, and Adinijah took hold of the horns of the altar, the altar of sacrifice to God, and held on it, pleading for his life, refusing to let go. We see that God takes opportunity to choose a successor to bless him. And for the second time, we see a command to follow the law that was laid down through Moses. We can also look forward uh, to Elijah. Elijah is an interesting fellow. In 1 Kings 19, we first come across Elijah. Now, this is a man, I want you to to just remember, we talk about this story all the time. This is the man of God who faced down the 200 prophets of Baal. This is the man who said, I want you to meet me out here, all you prophets of Baal, and we're going to prove whose God is real. And he sat them with there all day as they built an altar to their God and they called out to him. And as was their way, they slipped themselves, cutting themselves, drawing their own blood, imploring Baal to send down fire to burn up the sacrifices. And Elijah is emboldened to mock them. Maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe he's in a conversation. Maybe he's using the restroom. Maybe it's his nap time. You should shout a little louder. He's a bold man. 200 people, the priests of Baal, are sitting there calling to their God, splitting themselves, cutting upon their skins, drawing their own blood, trying to get their attention, and he's just mocking them, boldly mocking them. And then on top of that, when it's his turn, when they've gone through this all day, He himself sets up an altar to God. He uses 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes. He digs a trench around the altar. And he fills the trench with water. And then he takes the offering placed upon the altar and he drenches it with water to the point that the altar itself was filled up beyond capacity. This is the man that called down to God. And immediately, all the water was burnt up. All the offering was burnt. And all the prophets of Baal fled for their lives. And he was running after them, chasing them down, praising God the entire time. This is Elijah. 
Now, if you continue to read about Elijah, the next thing that you'll discover is when King Ahab went back to one of his wives, Jezebel, and told her what had taken place, she cursed Elijah's name and swore that she would see him dead and that the dogs would lick his blood from the stone. And when Elijah heard the same man that boldly stood before all of these people and cried out mockingly as they tried to reach out to their God, ran for his life and hid himself in the wilderness under a bush where he pleaded with God to die. See, this is the type of person that God chooses for leadership. For all his victories and for all his failures, this is the type of person that God chooses for leadership. Because immediately after that, we find him moving on after being sustained by God with ravens bringing him bread, with water springing forth for survival. He ends up in a cave. He is led to a cave and experiences the call de mama de cave, the still small voice. It literally translates as the sound of thin silence. And after he hears the still small voice that is God, he is given three directives. The last of which is that he is going to go and search out Elisha, who is to succeed him as prophet. He is to go and he is to anoint Elisha, and that will be his successor. So Elisha then set out from there and he came, Elijah then set out from there and he came upon Elisha, the son of Shepheth, as he was plowing the field with 12 strong oxen. And there, with the oxen ahead of him, Elijah came over to him and threw his mantle over him, showing a succession from one to the other. Now, the final episode of Elijah's career includes the powerful image of a prophet conveyed heavenward in a windstorm of chariots and fire drawn into the heavens. So though this man pleaded with God for death, he did not experience death even at the end. And it is Elisha who watches him until he disappears. It is Elisha that tears his clothes in two and it takes up Elijah's mantle. And as he leaves the scene of this tremendous display and goes back out across the Jordan River, he takes that mantle and lays it on the water just as Elijah had done on the way there. And he prays to the God of Elijah 
and the river is parted so that she may walk across on dry land. And all who were there saw it and understood. Elisha was the successor and was the prophet that God had chosen. What do these examples that we've discussed have in common? You see God specifically telling the people that he's already chosen, these are the people that will be your successors. It is God that chooses, not man who chooses. It is God who equips, not man who equips. You see a transition going from people being spoken to directly by God to being spoken to directly by the book of law that Moses had written through God's direction. So instead of the spoken word of God, you see the written word of God take hold. God chose these people as flawed as they were to lead, and he chose the men who were to take up the mantle of leadership afterward, and God chose those who would succeed at that. Those that tried to take up the mantle themselves did not succeed because they didn't do the main thing that you always must do in relationship with God, and that is submit to his will. If you seek to lift yourself up into a role of leadership, because you believe that you have the qualifications that you've learned over the years, that you've prepared yourself and you're of quality workmanship because of what you can do. If you seek to do that on your own, you will fail because you will not qualify. If there is nothing more that you would take from today, it is to understand that the number one qualification for anyone in leadership that you must submit to the will of God. Because remember, it's God that chose these successors. It's God that put these people in relationship with each other. It is God that passes the mantle, and it is God that commands what it is they are to do. So the same principles of succession and planning and evidence of transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua it all follows through into modern day. We see that God is the orchestrator of all things. He calls and few listen. We see that God provides a path for all of us and God prefers succession. We're not called to be autonomous. We're not called to be alone. We're called to be in relationship with one another. And that includes unto leadership. is a clear demonstration of his will as he chooses people who have qualifications to be leaders, not because of themselves, so not because of ourselves, but because of his grace. If we do not humbly submit to God's will, if we do not continue to rely on him, if we do not continue to follow the word that he has passed down through Moses, we will never qualify to be leaders. 
My question for you today, in addition to the two that I've shared, is what are you waiting for? I can say with all honesty that we have all been called. In Matthew, it tells us that we are to go out and make disciples of all men. What is that if not a call? Colin talked about it last month. Did it say specifically, I want this group of people to go out and make disciples of all men? Is there a qualifier as to the singleness of a person that is to do that? Are their names listed down? Did God say, I want uh, Josh and James and Colin and Adam, maybe John, Heidi, Shayla, Kelsey, Justine. I want them to go out and make disciples of all men. The rest of you, just, you know, just try it. He didn't do that. So you need to ask yourself these questions. Question one. I'm filled with questions today. Question one. This is for our cell groups. Are you ready? Does your life reflect self-exaltation? That means lifting up. Or does it reflect service to the purpose of God? So does your life reflect self-exaltation or service to the purpose of God? Second question. Have you listened? Have you listened to the cold, the nema, the K, the still small voice that is giving you direction, that is calling you? And third, have you accepted the mantle that has been passed to you? Those are the discussions. We do have all three cell groups today. So if you normally go to Adams or Collins or mine, those are all available to you in their usual places. Let's go and discuss.